0: Good morning to the Real Vision viewers. Um, I'm Matt Rao from Headwaters Volatility, uh, and I have the pleasure of interviewing Jared Dillian of Daily Dirt Nap. Uh, Jared and I have known each other for a number of years, and we seem to have bonded over contagion, and uh, we, we tend to compare notes when things get weird. So he's a, a great touch point uh, in that regard. Uh, Jared uh, has a long career, um, which uh, started off at in Coast Guard, and uh, has extended into working with Lehman Brothers and the ETF and uh, in index arbitrage desk, if I remember correctly, Jared. Yep. And um, he has now made a uh, career and a name for himself in uh, commentating on how ridiculous things get uh, often in our industry. So I'm happy to be able to follow up on our conversation uh, that we had stemming from Jared's recent article uh, that he wrote. For Bloomberg, um, and uh, do it live here in front of the viewers uh, for your benefit and entertainment to some degree. Um, but I hope it's enlightening. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Um, I find that Jared challenges my my thinking and gets me to uh, to come to some pretty good conclusions as we uh, work through things over time. So thanks, Jared, for for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for the introduction.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the things just right off the bat to dive into it that you mentioned in your article is about the collision of um, what people, what investors do, uh, and how there's a bit of self-loathing or a conflict between what, what they do and and sort of negative commentary. You know, how, how do you think about that? Like, what's your view on that at this point as far as investors' behavior goes?
1: Well, I think that there's, um, I think Money managers are greatly influenced by their personal feelings about things. Um, yeah. You know, we're all human beings. We all have a sense of right and wrong. And um, you know, a lot of people who have worked in the industry for a long time and have seen the evolution of the Fed over the years. You know, they look at what the Fed is doing with unlimited quantitative easing and the uh, stimulus and buying yeah. junk ETFs and everything, and they say that this, you know, this is socialism. This is bad. Um, and what they kind of lose sight of is the idea that their job isn't really to have an opinion on these sorts of things. Their job is to make money for their clients. Um, yeah. And oftentimes that involves doing things which they might find t- distasteful. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And you know, if, if the Fed is buying high-yield credit, then you should be buying high-yield credit. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't matter about your personal feelings about it. Um, but if there's explicit support for an asset class, then it pays to play along with the Fed. and that's what you should be doing. Uh, but there's there's a, there's a bunch of examples over the years where, you know, people get caught up with their personal feelings about something. They say, well, I'm not investing in this because it's a bubble, yeah. whatever, this is a bad stock. And um, you, you, you try to divorce those feelings from what your actual, Investment thesis is
0: yeah, I mean I can remember in um, Years past running convertible bond portfolios looking at things like um, issues that had no takeover protection built into them and Making a loud protest to the underwriters that you know, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't remove that protection for bondholders Um, we shouldn't buy it if it's not in there and then the new issue pricing is 102 bid in the gray market, and you have a choice of going in at par or not. And you know what? You probably participate at par. So, um, you know, I I think that's an interesting topic, though, um, in an ESG type world, and and even where we stand right now with the you know Sarbanes Oxley and such. Um, what do you think about things uh, you know like the the zone of insolvency for, for companies where you know executives have uh, of publicly traded companies under Sarbanes-Oxley have a fiduciary duty or a legal requirement to do everything that they can to maximize shareholder value. Um, but in times of distress, there's a there's a legal concept called the zone of insolvency where the the requirement of the executives of the publicly traded companies and other shifts towards defending assets of the company to benefit or to preserve value for debt holders. Um, what, do you, what do you see or think about that notion in a world where we've become so accustomed to the benefit of buybacks and, and other shareholder-friendly things? Do you think that there's possibility for people to think about cap structures more broadly, or are we still more in everything is good for equity, you should do it and follow and chase.
1: Uh, I still think we're at the point where everything is good for equity, and you should follow and chase. Um, you know, it's funny I hadn't really thought about the zone of insolvency until you mentioned it, and this idea that you would do things that are preferential for bondholders. Um, but I don't, I don't think we're, I don't think we're at that point yet. Although I will say that you know now that uh, buybacks are probably going to be mostly disappearing. Mm-hmm. And that dividends, S&P dividends are probably going to be down about 40% that, you know, these are shareholder unfriendly actions Yeah. Um, now. But these are, these considerations don't really have anything to do with capital structure. They have to do with really politics Yeah. Um, and the perception that, you know, companies would be rewarding shareholders during a time of crisis. So it's really about perception and politics. Yeah. Uh, but for sure, that's you know that's uh, definitely not benefiting shareholders.
0: Yeah, I I often have thought in the last couple of weeks that the answer to this situation, barring any influence or outside you know intervention from the government, um, that the right thing to do for companies is to do things that are dilutive, right? Because I've sort of classically trained in cap structure that I view equity as a call option on the assets of a company above and beyond that that the debt holders have a claim to. And it seems as though the behavior of the the pricing is different for, for many reasons. But taken to its extreme, one thing where buybacks are concerned that seems ridiculous to me is, can you imagine if a company refuses to give guidance, yet they continue buying back their own shares? I mean, That seems to me to be a very risky. Move for for companies because if you're spending shareholder capital to buy back stock and you can't even issue guidance, there seems to be some sort of new um, level of ludicrousness. But I'm sure it'll happen. I'm sure there, as we say you know, here today, there are some
1: companies with that. It's funny that you mentioned buybacks because buybacks are an example of what I was talking about. Um, you know with portfolio managers with their personal feelings about things. Mm -hmm. If you go back to 2017, 18, 19, you know, there was plenty of data out there that showed that buybacks were responsible for most of the returns in the Mm S&P 500. Um, And, you know, as as a money manager, you could sit there and you could say, um, okay, we're doing a trillion in buybacks a year um this is rewarding people who are just long yeah um, and but that's not really what happened people complained about it they fought it they um, they said I don't want to participate in this and they you know they severely underperformed the market for a period of about three or four years as the buybacks were running about 800 nine hundred a trillion dollars a year so yeah I, th- I think you're
0: right and and it's hard to argue that if, Times are good, and executives of particularly publicly traded companies in this regard are doing what's best to maximize shareholder value. Now, there's a pretty good, strong case to say that you should be doing buybacks even over dividends. I mean, I know that the dividend versus buyback case studies are an often debated point of um, business school um, theoretical and and sort of engineering process. But to me, that you know the buyback wave has been the the most recent chapter and sort of getting further and further out on the risk spectrum um, from 08 and I guess if we if we walk it back to Jared where you and I sort of were in more constant conversation while you were at Lehman and and I was running a highly levered convertible arbitrage firm um, you know we saw things get fractured for various reasons in 08 and then we've been sort of working back from that, in my opinion, since, where in 08, there was um, secured debt was trading at a like, significant discount to um, liquidation value. Then you got preferred equity. And then you had you know various forms of other risk premiums are now defined that were at different levels of cheap. And now it's about creating cheapness. And the buybacks are sort of creating scarcity value or cheapness and equity as we've moved Further out here, and it seems that you know the step one of getting back to more normal times. I guess you maybe could say I don't know what normal is anymore. But um, stopping buyback seems like a very rational thing to do. But at the same time, it seems like the U.S. government, Treasury, Fed is sort of starting in a slow motion LBO of uh, of the market. So to your point. If you don't like it, you can get a job doing something else. If you continue to manage money, you should probably play along. what Like what do you think about the government buying high yield and the you know us moving into that part of the market?
1: Well, I think you and I are about the same age, and you know when i when I, when, I, when I first got my job in the capital markets on the floor of the Pe it was nineteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And um, back then interest rates were you know fed funds were six and a half percent there was no QE, there was no asset purchases, there was nothing like that yeah. and it was it was just a it was a very different environment. Um, you know, fast forward to today and you know we're talking about you know it's one of the things I've been doing work on is we're about to issue, Three trillion in treasuries over a three-month period. Yeah, um, you're going to have auctions in tens that are 100, 150, 200 billion worth of tens at the same time. Yeah, at 0.66 percent interest rates, and there's the possibility that people show up at these auctions because we have the only debt that is positive on a nominal basis, and the dollar has been strong. And it's just you know the 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 progression that we've had over the last twenty years to this um, you know this new era in finance I guess has just been unbelievable to watch.
0: I, I would agree with you, and actually I think when I worked, you and I have the Pacific Options Exchange in common as well. When I worked on the floor straight out of college. One of the things I did was to walk around and ask people what their strategy is. You know, how how do you think about this? What do you do? What how do you manage risk? And I quickly learned that um, there were a lot of gamblers on the on the floor. Yeah. Um, you know, even outside of running a sports book, um, there were a lot of people who were you know not running delta neutral vol risk. It was more various forms of directional bets. But probably the most shocking one conversation that I had was a guy who told me that his secret, and it t- probably took me a couple of weeks to, for him to trust me well enough to open up on his trading secret, but his trading secret was to get short gamma and trade it as if he's long. And I thought to myself, now, that makes absolutely no sense. Why in the world would somebody <laughs> do this, right? Um, but the reality of the situation is that, that I didn't really understand or appreciate at the time is that he was basically identifying that his clearing firm had had all the risk. And if he could leverage himself to the put that he's long, you know, by the clearing firm, he can only lo- lose as much money as he has on, you know, deposit at the clearing firm. And if he loses more than that, it's on them. So it kind of feels that way now. I feel like we're back to a point where, uh, you know, to, in order to really maximize the benefit or to understand the risk framework, you have to understand where the where the risks lie and where you have backstops and. And things like that, and you know, here comes the the Fed with buying high yield again. To your point, point. Um, and you should probably just, you know, at, at the very least, understand that that mechanism is in place uh, if you're trading high yield or equity volatility, um, and at best, figure out a way to get ahead of it. And I think that's that's really what the market has done to date. Although I will say, when I look back on the last month. Um, since the, the low of right around mid March to today, I believe that the S and P and the Nasdaq are up somewhere around 24, 25, 26 percent um, since the lows in mid March. But the high yield spread is roughly the same. I find that to be sort of strange. Um, I'm, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, uh, high yield is kind of in a funny place right now. Um, the market is kind of divided in two. Uh, the Fed isn't buying all bonds; they're buying some bonds. Yeah. And the the bonds that the Fed is buying have yields of four percent, and the bonds that the Fed is not buying have yields of ten percent. Mm-hmm. Um. And what's interesting is that people are piling in into the bonds that are supported by the Fed, mm-hmm. uh, but it's totally bifurcated. And there's there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in some of these issues that you know like. You know, just I don't I don't invest in credit as, you know, on, on a daily basis. Um, you know, I basically I, I jump into credit in times of crisis. I jumped into credit in 2002. I jumped into credit in 2009. Anytime yeah. you start getting nominal yields out to double digits, I start to get interested. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, there's there's an economic bet here and about the virus and, you know, how quick we're going to recover and stuff like that and how long the recession is going to be. But I think there's some opportunity in the stuff that the Fed is not buying. Yeah,
0: well, that's a good point. I think it seems very—I uh, don't know if alarming is the right word—but to your point of your article, you know, I there are certain points in my career where I've become either irritated or personally offended by certain things that that have to have been done or haven't been done. Um, and the GM bankruptcy is something that I was intimately involved with that that reminds me of that, um, and. You know, I, I continually think about well, what could come out of left field and just shock everybody. Um, crude oil trading negative is one. To your point about uh, Treasury auctions coming up, you know, what what do you what would shock the world if we had a ten-year auction that went off with such massive demand for some reason that it traded at, you know, a shocking rate or flat. Um, you know things like that. I think will just cause people to be offended, shocked, otherwise caught off guard. Um, but I think you know when when thinking about things like the General Motors bankruptcy, you know I come back to this notion that the the government is almost doing a slow motion LBO of equity in the in the U.S. markets and sort of how to play along with that. Um, I, I don't. I have a hard time making sense of. Uh, which companies are going to be allowed to fail and which ones aren't? I think that's probably the the question that I have the fewest answers for. What, what do you think if you were going to tell somebody your thought on you know which companies are going to be allowed to fail and and which ones aren't? what are the what are the characteristics or the criteria of of what goes into the friend of the government you know bucket versus the not friend of the government bucket?
1: Well, I want to I want to answer this question in sort of a roundabout way. Uh, you, you know, you talked about ESG uh, a couple of minutes ago, and I think I think ESG is is a pretty good um, framework for how to talk about this. So, under an ESG mm-hmm. framework, you say, okay, this is this is a tobacco company, this is a bad company, and we are going to, going to exclude it. Okay, yeah, and or this is an energy company or whatever, mm-hmm. and If you think about this in terms of constraints, an ESG manager has explicit constraints. There are things that they simply cannot buy, um, refuse to buy. And then you have, on the other hand, you have somebody who's an unconstrained manager. They can buy anything they want. How can you expect a, a constrained investor to outperform an unconstrained investor? So if you think about a portfolio manager today, And they say, I disagree with what the Fed is doing. It's I find it offensive, whatever. So I'm not going to participate in this. I'm not going to buy these bonds. In effect, what happens to them is that they become a constrained investor. They don't have explicit constraints. They They don't have rules that they have to follow where they exclude certain bonds. But they say it's their implicit constraints. These are things that I will not buy. And yeah. then they become constrained investors, and then you can't expect them to outperform unconstrained investors,
0: right? I, I think that's kind. Of, it's it's funny when we talk about the moral hazard, or um, you know that that topic, which you just illustrated well. It it then sort of begs the the conversation or argument of you know, well, is this and isn't this how we got into covenant light loans or? Isn't this how we got into? You know, people would say like, well, why in the world would you buy a basket of um, fixed income that didn't have these protections built in, or you know, the market pushed this far? And it's like, well, if you're being paid to manage money for people, and you are personally offended or morally offended to a point where you're handicapped to a degree where you can't do your job, you really have to choose. Well, do I play along, or do I, you know, sit over here and hope that somebody's going to pay me to? Do nothing, right? So I think that maybe is a good segue to talking about what I think is the agency risk in the business, in the asset management and hedge fund business um, these days, and and something that I've observed for years that the people managing portfolios, uh, managing uh, assets for investors, definitely have a different time horizon than the the end pool of money that they're managing. So most of people in our business, you know, are have some sort of an incentive fee alignment, and are expected to take action to make changes, to you know, buy things that are on new issue, to identify things that are uniquely cheap and buy them quickly. There's not much reward for being patient or being uninvested. And what I hear from Sam Zell and Warren Buffett today—not um, that I'm a disciple of Warren Buffett. Um, but I pay attention. Um, is that they haven't seen anything that has caused them to get excited to buy, um, even in the middle of of March? So, if if you have a bunch of portfolio managers at hedge funds that are, you know, if you didn't buy something in March, you're probably out of a job. And then you have a lot of, you know, bigger, more patient money that didn't touch anything in March. You know, how what do you think about the the agency risk or the compensation, personal compensation risk? That drives a lot of uh, market behavior in this. Is is it a misalignment of interests, or what do you think?
1: Well, I think it, I think it all comes down to time horizons, uh, and I think people have different time horizons. One of yep. the things I've talked about in my newsletter is, um, you know, the performance of private equity versus hedge funds, mm-hmm. and how private equity has had this outperformance, but private equity doesn't really mark to market. Right. Um, and but but the the reason that private equity outperforms is because they have a 10 year lockup. You say we're yeah. locking up your money for 10 years, you can't get it. And now everybody's time horizon is aligned. Okay. Correct. But yeah. if you're if you're a hedge fund and you're providing people with quarterly liquidity, then what that that what that does is it prevents you from taking positions which could be illiquid, which yeah. could be hard to sell. That you would like to hold for a long period of time, but you may be forced to liquidate those positions if somebody redeems your fund.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I've I've often thought
1: of you you. Really need
0: the vehicle to match the liquidity of the asset class that you're going to be trading. And part of the the post 08 story in my mind was that there was a premium for things that were liquid at the beginning, and then. Out to today, even as we sit here today, there's a premium paid for opacity in private equity. You know, if you don't have to own up to the mark-to-market shifts in private equity, if you can sort of pave over, uh, if if this truly is a you know quick one-quarter interruption to the economy, which I don't necessarily believe in myself, but if it were, your mark-to-market experience in private equity would be pretty much zero. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case. I actually think that that's going to be a, a pocket of significant pain um, as we come out of this. And you know, maybe maybe that's a good segue to talking about um, emerging from the you know coronavirus um, stall or coronavirus uh, halt to uh, the world world's business. Um, you know, my contention is that. Once things reopen or things restart, it's not going to be a magic uh, grand opening of an amusement park. It's more going to be like walking past the yellow tape uh, of a crime scene and seeing just how bad it is on the inside. What do you think about where we go from here? What do you what do you think people are going to be surprised by, or um, what do you think is going to be the 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 reaction to reopening the economy?
1: Well, I think that. We have the we have the possibility to have a pretty deep 12 to 18 month recession. Um, from a policy standpoint, I think we made it worse through un- unemployment benefits. We also did this in the financial crisis. We extended unemployment benefits to like 96 weeks or something like that. Yeah. And you know there's a lot of research that shows that people don't look for work until their unemployment benefits are start- starting to run out yeah and in this particular case, we're paying you know we're paying unemployment benefits that are well in excess of what they were making at their jobs. Mm-hmm. so it's it's going to take a really, really long time to hire back those people. Um, this is it's going to be a slow process. Yeah, I think you know I think we could have negative GDP out to the middle of you know two thousand twenty one and with that in mind, here here we go, um
0: me trying to get an investment angle out of this. With that in mind, like how, how does anybody make sense of current valuation on stocks? I mean, I guess, from my perspective, to the point of your article, you can be offended, you can be uh, you know, morally challenged with like what the government is actually doing, but they're doing things. And our job as money managers is to take advantage of that and to make the best risk-adjusted decisions we can. But I think about, and I agree largely with what you said about the impairment on growth um, but I also consider one of the greatest potentials for a positive equity market is a surprising level of growth. Um, what, do, what do you think about equity valuations here, uh, or does it even matter?
1: I think they're high, but I don't think it matters a lot. You know, one of the things I learned very early in my career is that the stock market is not the economy, and the economy is not the stock market. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think that statement. Is more true now than it ever has been in history. I agree um, with that. I think I think that you know, in a Fed-free world, um, S and P would probably be below two thousand. You know, mm-hmm. and I think valuations would be a lot more reasonable. Um, you know, speaking of which, I want one of the things I wanted to mention was I wanted to talk a little bit about market commentary and how it pertains to this. Because there's, you know, getting back to the original point, um, you know, people complaining about the Fed. There's a, there's a whole genre of financial commentary out there that talks about what the Fed should do. And instead, we should be focused on what the Fed will do. And they have a very predictable reaction function. I mean, the Fed, the government oper- operates differently from the private sector. And I worked in the government, so I know this. The, the government is motivated by different things, mm-hmm. they don't have PL. The, what the government tries to do at all costs is to avoid being embarrassed, OK? That's, that is the Fed's reaction function. They act in a way so that they try to minimize embarrassment. And if you, knew, if you knew that going into this crisis, you knew that the most embarrassing thing that would have happened to the Fed is if they actually allowed the markets to fail at this particular yeah. point in time. So you know, for the Fed buying credit, um, you know, I think that was I think that was fairly easy to predict, and I I think he could have made money off of that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I I think about it. You know, Powell is pretty transparent, and um, he has spoken about in very direct terms that the Fed's position is a short vol position that they've effectively shorted puts to risk takers across the market. Um, and that the market has responded accordingly, and there's no reason to think that they're going to do anything different. So when you you know people have asked me, well, what do you think about the Fed's reaction, the Fed's action? Is it vol dampening? And the answer is absolutely, most most certainly it is. It doesn't mean that the jump to zero probability for certain companies to our earlier conversation um, is removed entirely. It's not going to stem insolvency from you know certain companies we're even today talking about hertz potentially filing for bankruptcy and accessing that that um, that path but i think you're right i think it does it it lops off a significant bit of what i would refer to in like the classic trinomial tree analysis of up node down node jump to zero the jump to zero for the market is effectively not there it's funny when you're talking about you know the government me being raised in a government household as well, that you know, avoiding embarrassment at all costs. Maybe this is why the whole contention between, or you know, nasty relationship between the U.S. Postal Service and Amazon exists because um, you know Amazon's killing it on you know doing this and effectively arbitraging the Postal Service right in front of the, a lot of people's face, and uh, people don't like it. And maybe the biggest difference is. Um, you know, retirement benefits and you know legacy liabilities but that that's a that's a whole nother conversation
1: i think the best way to understand this this is a light bulb went off for me about a week ago somebody mentioned this to me in an email um you know i've been uh, semi unsuccessfully trying to short canadian housing for the last seven years you know uh, it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, been, it's been it's just been this ongoing saga and it's You know, I've I haven't gotten killed, but it hasn't exactly been fun. So that's actually
0: sorry to interrupt, though. That's amazing because number one, it's a hard thing to short, Um, and number two, it sounds like you have some personal angle why you think that the the valuations are ridiculous. Like, what what led you to wanting to enter into this? uh, I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, this was about 2013, and um, you know, I started you know reading anecdotes about construction in Toronto, and uh, you know what was going on in Vancouver, and you know, like a lot of there's a lot of wise guy U.S. investors that said, "Okay, we just had a, a housing crash in the U.S. The same thing is going to happen in Canada." Yeah. So, so this was a very popular short, you know, in, in the hedge fund community. Yeah. And the the thing that I literally just figured out like last week is that culturally, Canada is the same with houses as we are with stocks in the US. In the US, we do not allow stocks to fail. It is in our DNA. We support yeah. the stock market. And yeah. in Canada, their savings are in houses and, and the government cannot allow the housing market to fail. So yeah. just as pointless as it is to try to short housing in canada it's it's equally pointless to try to short stocks in the us it's almost it's like a cultural thing
0: yeah yeah I and mean, i think you're right short alpha in the hedge fund world is is something that is very hard to come by because you can be right academically and you can be right theoretically but if you don't get the timing perfect the cost of financing a short or you know riding against the beta wave um, has largely made it you know, Impossible. It's like the rainbow unicorn um, to be able to generate short alpha consistently over time. You know, one of the things that that we were talking about before the interview on on a phone conversation too, coming back to the idea about General Motors um, and my experience with GM. Like I was personally offended by the fact that the U.S. government threw out all bankruptcy precedent with General Motors coming out of 08. And it seemed to me that the reason they did that was because the Viba GM uh, was effectively long General Motors stock. And they made a number of tactical errors and a number of managerial error- errors. But when the the story was getting towards its conclusion, it seemed that the real crux of the problem was that General Motors had 250,000 pensioners that, without GM and the Viba remaining intact, were going to become. Uh, Obligations of the U.S. government, and so they opted to keep the company alive and to prop them up in ways that you know, legal precedent wouldn't have dictated uh, prior to that, um, simply because it was cheaper, easier to keep the pensioners um, serviced, if you will, by the the pension plan uh, of GM. Do you see that sort of system-wide right now, like keeping companies intact and in, uh, in functioning? Um, supported by the government as a way of managing uh, the population because it, it becomes a bigger problem if if we get a series of failures. or what do you think, to your point of Americans loving the stock market, like Canadians love housing, what do you think drives the the desire to prop things up?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a whole lot to talk about there. Um, I think we're there. You know, I think the parallel today with uh, GM in 2008 is the airlines. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the airlines are going to have explicit government support for a long time. You know, it's interesting because uh, I was reading this morning that um, there's a whole bunch of re- retail investors that are piling into JETS, which is the uh, airline ETF. Yeah. You know, apparently Robinhood has gone from 300 accounts with JETS to 20,000 accounts with JETS in a week. Wow. And they've had like 480 million of assets go into that ETF. So people are trying to pick a bottom in airlines. Um, I guess what I would say to that is the airlines are going to trade away a significant amount of upside in exchange for for this support. Um, And, you know, buying airlines at these valuations, I mean, yeah, like the airlines are not going to be allowed to fail. But all the upside is gone. All the upside is absolutely gone, and what happens in times of crisis is that people change the rules. People change yeah. the rules in times of crisis, and just like your experience with GM in two thousand eight, you know this is what bankruptcy law says is supposed to happen. All the rules went out the window. I mean, we broke. We yeah. you know we changed some other rules back then. We uh, we banned short selling of of financials. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's that's just what happens in times of crisis.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the ultimate question to the point of your article is, you know, you can be offended, you can be uh, outraged by certain things, and you can write about it, or you can refuse to participate in the market. But that's sort of futile. So, what do you think? What rules do you think are going to get changed now outside of the Fed buying high yield bonds? Like, if if we had a crystal ball and we could say, okay, these these rules are are going to get changed and that'll make all the difference. Do you have any conceptual or specific ideas of what rules you think are going to be changed? Yeah. If you could tell me first before we put it in the interview, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: I don't know about the federal government, but I can tell you that the Fed has two things left that they haven't done and they're saving that for when things really get bad and one is negative interest rates and one is buying equities. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Fed has said that they don't want negative interest rates, but they have left it open as a possibility, and everybody says they're against negative interest rates until they're for it. So uh, I think that's a possibility at some point, um, you know, maybe to steepen the yield curve. And the other possibility is you know, buying stocks, which you know, I think if we had, let's just pretend we had a second wave of infections, things get worse. We have another lockdown a hundred percent chance we'll retest the lows, and that's that's probably when you actually have the Fed buying stocks, just like the BOJ does in Japan. Yeah. so those are the two things that I think could happen at some point in the future. Yeah. it seems
0: like to your earlier point of the the upcoming uh, wave of auctions that we have, the the classically trained supply demand uh, thought would be, well, that's a lot, so the yield's going to have to be higher. Um, but the cynic in me is often coming back to, well, whatever the pain trade is, is probably what's going to happen. So similar to uh, crude oil trading negative um, recently, you know, wouldn't it just floor everybody if the you know, massive size in a 10-year auction went off at a zero uh, yield or you know, slightly negative? I don't necessarily think that that's going to happen. But at this point, I guess I'm conditioned to not being surprised by anything. You know, what do you think for the real vision viewers and for myself what what's your take on covering the markets going forward for you know for your newsletter and um, for the things that you see as being important to pay attention to I mean I've got a few that I can share in a couple minutes too but I'd be curious to hear what your what, what you think the next chapter looks like what's the summer look like
1: uh, I'm actually working on that right now Um You know, I'm I'm really good at investing in a crisis. Um, You know, so during the period we just had, you know, it's I've actually done pretty well. But I'm, you know, one of the things I actually my newsletter on Monday the title was out of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, literally because we're kind of in we're kind of in this no man's land where uh, stocks are overvalued, but the Fed is supporting them. Yeah. Uh, you know the upside is gone for a lot of stocks, but the downside is truncated. So I'm I'm trying to figure out what that next big opportunity is, and honestly, I haven't I haven't come up with it yet.
0: I would love to see to your point of of airlines. Number one, I think you're right that the upside is constrained. I mean, there's been a revolving door for bankruptcy for airlines as long as I can remember, um, and I often come back conceptually to what's the difference between keeping a revolving door open for bankruptcy for airlines and amtrak right amtrak exists because private entities couldn't run it at a profit but the government decided it was important enough to the economy and to the to the infrastructure to maintain it so it's now run like the postal service without concern about profitability a revolving door in bankruptcy uh, is similar i guess from a funding standpoint other than you get Equity investors to routinely throw money in it again, and then they get restructured every seven and a half to eight years or something like that. Um, but it seems to me that if you're going to give people a put, uh, just coming back to my volatility strategy and my background, if you're going to give people a put in the form of supporting the equity market, you should demand something in return for it. So the idea of, is, you know, issuing companies issuing warrants to the U.S. government. Um, which would cap the upside uh, in exchange for some form of downside protection, seems like a logical spread trade. Do you think that even just outside of uh, the airlines that we'll see other companies issuing warrants again um, to the taxpayers, to the the Treasury or to the Fed, do you think that's the type of structure that we're going to see more of? Or do you think that we just see continued support? Of high yield and equity pricing, with with no requirement on the upside. Uh,
1: I think that I think that depends on the political environment. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it. I think you're unlikely to see that if Trump is president. You might see that, um, you know, in a different administration. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that you know one of the things I fear about the airlines. You know I've been flying for a long time. I've been flying since I was a little kid. My parents were divorced, and I used to go back and forth across the country. And in 1981, um, a plane ticket from New York to LA, round trip, cost seven hundred dollars in 1981 dollars. Wow! And in 2013. It cost two hundred and fifty dollars in two thousand thirteen dollars. So basically yeah. costs were very high in a regulated environment, and then we deregulated the airlines and prices yeah. came down for everybody. And my concern is, is that we're gonna have uh, we're gonna return to previous levels of intervention in air travel and it's it's going to get expensive again. We're gonna re-regulate the airlines. That's my concern. So yeah,
0: it, it seems that way. I mean, anecdotally. The immediate response seems that way. And I think just this morning, um, Virgin just announced that they're going to no longer fly out of Gatwick, I believe, and that they're cutting 25% of their their staff. And United is laying off a number of people and forcing um, a lot of reduction. So if, it's that, if that's happening in the airline industry, you know, I, I find it hard conceptually. This is where I get on the, the, the verge of, I have a great idea. But will the government actually let it happen? You know, why wouldn't that happen in energy? You know, why why don't we let the sort of free market take over in energy, or is the energy industry in the U.S. um, crucial enough to our independence and to the the national identity that that we save it? You know, do you have an opinion on on energy as a sector?
1: Yeah. Once again, I you know I think that depends on the. On the political environment, you know, I think under the Trump administration, yeah. you know, energy's considered to be of strategic importance. Yeah, uh, I think under un, under a different administration, it might be considered to be sort of an ESG uh, problem. Right. Um. So I, you know, again, I think it's I think it's just due to the political environment.
0: Interesting. Well, the you know one of the things that I have come back to I and mean, early on in in my career, there was a a story that went around about a, an interview question um, where the question was posed to the, the potential job candidate. You know, There's a button on your desk. And if you hit that button, a million dollars is going to fall out of the ceiling onto your desk. But a random person somewhere in the world is going to drop dead. Um, would you push that button? And if so, how many times? And the read-through to this was obviously, you know, how, how much of a savage is the person sitting in front of you? How do they think about, you know, risk-reward? And maybe this is the early days of, uh, of ESG, and we're and really taking a blunt force um, idea to it. But like, how do you cross the chasm of, of what you're writing about here, and a big problem for the market of, you know, there are things that offend us and get to a point where, well, that seems impossible and not likely to happen, um, versus, well, you might not like it, but it's going to happen anyway. Um, so, stop complaining about it or run for Congress. Like, w- what do you think the most important <laughs> confluence is of of that, you know, moral hazard and and of in being offended versus pragmatism and the reality of it? I mean, how do you like wrap that up and decide what falls on which
1: side of the? I look at this from a standpoint of I actually look at it from a psychological standpoint and things that you can control and you have to figure out the things that you can control and the things that you can't control mm-hmm. and if you spend a lot of time worrying or or stressing about things you can't control then it's psychologically unhealthy you know i see people on facebook with 500 friends and they're posting about politics constantly and it's obvious that they're very upset about what's going on in the country <laughs> yeah. um, they're very you know they're they're extremely upset and but that you just you just have to say, you know, what is in my power to change? Like what yeah. things that what things can I do? And, you know, me personally, um, you know, I write a newsletter and I do some other things. But, you know, it, like I, you know, I send my newsletter to a few thousand people and uh, I have the ability to, you know, influence their thought process. And that's the extent of my influence. You know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, just like you said, like, you know, if you don't like it, run for Congress, like that's, you know, that's, that's (laughs) absolutely true, you
0: know? Yeah, well, I think the, um, the, one of the mantras that I was taught early on in my career was know your risk and get paid for it. And that's actually, it sounds simplistic, but it's very hard these days from my perspective. You know, we, Headwaters Volatility um, runs long vol overlays for, institutional office, family offices, and institutional investors. Um, and one of the hardest things to do is to know your risk and to de- decide whether you're being compensated for taking that risk. Um, and you know, to your point of don't do irrational things, if somebody came came to you and said, I'd like to buy a put on the S&P struck at $1,500, what, what would you say?
1: So if somebody came to me and they wanted to buy a put on the S&P at 1500 yeah.
0: Yeah, would you um, tell them
1: that they're, like, that's
0: ludicrous, that they shouldn't waste their money? Or um, what do you think the effective strike, like the put spread strikes are for, um, you know, if, if you were going to reverse engineer the perfect put spread where you were long a strike that has some semblance of possibility of getting hit and short a lower strike that would never get touched, what well, what would you guess?
1: uh probably the 22 2500 put spread 2200 2500 put spread yeah okay. uh, 22 is the previous lows you buy the 25s you sell the 22s um last i checked that was trading for around 60 or 70 points pays off 5 to 1 yeah. um i i think i think that's the right now that's a hedge you know that's yeah. absolutely a hedge um, yeah. but i i think i think that's the right trade
0: interesting i mean i i would tend to agree with you i think the um, I ten, I look at it as I constantly think about high the high yield market as being a form of a put, right? If back to the idea of know your risk and get paid for it, you know most of risk taking is a short vault trade. So owning equities is technically and theoretically a short vault trade. Certainly buying a high yield bond is very similar to selling puts on the same company. you're you're being compensated for. Taking a risk on the company and the the worst case scenario is failure. So um, I think one of the biggest challenges here is, in my mind, is you know there aren't many people who are paid to do nothing, and right now being patient and not getting overextended in either direction seems like the most prudent thing to do. But back to the initial point of the the discussion, not many people are in our business are compensated for doing nothing. Um, so. What do you what do you think the best course of action is from your perspective? If you're, you know, is the best form of being proactive, um, sitting still and being patient for a little while? Or do you think that um, you know, if somebody said to you, I have hundred million dollars and I'm 50% invested, would you what would you say to them about that?
1: Well, the second question I would I would try to I would try to put somebody in an asset allocation. Uh, you know again it depends on your time horizon but you know if this is long-term money i would put you in an asset allocation um, that makes sense over a long term you know i've thought about you know this this concept that there's not a lot to do right now yeah and um you know i've actually thought about short vol trades at this particular point in time um you're kind of getting yeah. paid to do it um you know it's it's you know, it's not easy for me to execute on the fancy stuff, but you know, I'm actually considering selling a strangle at this point in time, um, mm-hmm. which is something I never do. Uh, but just the fact that I'm considering it, I think, is kind of interesting. Well, I think I think that's that's right. And and I people ask me
0: frequently, what do you think of the VIX at you know 32 versus 40? Um, you know, a VIX of 32, I tend to turn this into practical. Uh, terms of, well, what does that really mean? It's, it's sort of a weird barometer where people don't necessarily often think through to, well, what is that really telling me? And one of the, the most easy to understand practical touch points is, OK, the, the VIX looks at roughly 30 days forward implied volatility on the S&P. Um, and it has some sensitivity to put skew and, and others. But in practical terms, if you look 30 days forward and you say, OK, the VIX is where it is. What are the other conditions of volatility that I can observe? One of them is the at-the-money straddle, right? Like if you have you have no opinion of the market goes up or down, and you buy both the call and the put at the money, how much does that cost you in dollar terms? And then what type of a move do you need in the S&P to break even, right? So what's the in sports gambling terms? What's the over/under on um, the move and so right now the over/under on the, the move for the S and P with the VIX sitting here, I, going from memory, is roughly seven percent, maybe a little bit over seven percent. Um, and if I think thirty days forward, you know, in considering what we've been doing in the market routinely here, I have a hard time selling that. You know, I I don't I don't necessarily know if the market's going to go up or down seven percent, but if I had to take the over or the under. On displacement or distribution of the S&P in 30 days, I would bet it's going to move more than seven percent. But I'm a long ball guy, so um, that, that's my predisposition, I suppose. Um, I think that's sort of the the crux of it: is do you do nothing? Do you hedge? Do you you know don't bother hedging and remain underinvested? Um, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge for everybody to try to pick through: is how to make sense of this and know, get compensated in the long term. And I, I will say one thing I hear frequently from people, particularly the large pension schemes around the world, is that the enemy of long-term compounding success is short-term drawdowns. And your point of knowing the time horizon is a crucial one. If you have a decade plus, you can weather some, some downturns and stay invested. Uh, you know, if you're closing in on retirement, you need that money for bills that are going to need to be paid in the next couple of years have a different tolerance for taking risk. And I think, to me, that's the big moral hazard of the Fed is if the policy pushes a bunch of people into risk positions that don't match up with their own time horizon, um, but they have no other choice, that to me is probably the biggest the biggest moral hazard in, in a lot of this. But I think you know we, we could talk for hours on this, and we do, and I look forward to Continuing the conversation, Jared, um, anything else you want to close with before we uh, before we wrap it up?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, this is uh, obviously a pretty exciting time. And uh, I'm definitely glad to be talking with you today. It's good to reconnect. So appreciate yeah, it.
0: Likewise. Well, look, we have to have something outside of a market contagion or blow up to uh, bring us <laughs> back together <laughs> um, to, to share ideas and talk more often. Um, but thanks to Real Vision for having us on, and um, we'd love to do it again sometime in, in the future, and maybe in the doldrums of summer when we're trying to figure out uh, how things are going to shape up coming into to the next uh, flu season, we'll, uh, we'll have reason to get together on TV again. But uh, thanks, Jared, and uh, thanks, Real Vision, for having us on. Be safe, uh, know your risk, and get paid for it. And you know, hedging is not an enemy. Um, but sometimes, uh, you should just not own the underlying asset instead of paying to hedge it, I guess would be, would be my advice.
1: Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube and there were no kittens in sight. So if you wanna find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.